0: Thank you, Susan. Good morning. Thanks for being here. I'm, I'm really glad you're here this morning, and if you're tuning in with us online, I want to tell you how much we can't wait to meet you, so come on by the next time that you're around this area, but thanks for tuning in this morning. I, I want to share a, a couple of different stories. You know how I love good stories, and I love a little bit of history, and, and try to bring some things in to get our minds thinking a little bit differently this morning, but, but I, I want to share with you a little bit about the story of, of a man named Yakov Stalin. Uh, You you may recognize the last name, but Yakov Stalin was actually the son of Joseph Stalin. And uh, Yakov's mother um, passed away when he was seven months old from typhus, and uh, he was um, uh, raised partially by his father, but but kind of passed around a little bit. Joseph Stalin, who was um, the, I would probably say the father of modern-day socialism and communism, was probably not a very good father. I think that's a fair thing to to say, Uh, especially if you know anything about him at all. And and, and, and as Yakov grew up a little bit, and, and that's him, he's a handsome fellow actually, uh, when, when, when he grew up a little bit he, he fell in love with a, a girl who uh, was the daughter of a priest. And of course Joseph was uh, opposed to that because he was actually opposed to any measure of religion because of how it had the, the ability to change and, and push uh, people in certain directions that were contrary to his own beliefs. And so as he shared with his father that he was in love with this girl, his father was very, very disappointed in him to the point to where Yakov actually um, shot himself. And uh, he shot himself in the chest, only hitting a lung and not as hard. And he survived his injury of this, to which his father said to him, you can't even shoot yourself right. Um, he was about 20 years old at the time, Shortly thereafter, uh, within you know, the next 10 years or so, it looked like uh, Germany was going to rise to power again, and they were going to move into Europe, and the Second World War was going to start up. Uh, to that, whenever all the Russian men were called up to go to war, and the women, by the way, uh, were called up to go to war, Joseph Stalin calls his son Yakov, and he doesn't tell him, good luck, be careful, keep your head down. He says, get in there and fight. That's what you're here to do for Mother Russia. In 1939, 300,000 troops were surrounded by the German army, 300,000 Russian troops. Among them was Yakov Stalin, and whenever Joseph Stalin was told of this and asked what he would do to retrieve his son, his response was simply, I have no son that was captured by the German army. I I don't know about you, but as far as getting your father's attention and getting his approval and getting his love and even just the recognition of your life, I would say Joseph Stalin is not the role model that we're all looking for. And Yakov, despite all the other things that went through his life, it never seemed like he ever got the one thing he longed for was the approval of his father. And and let's be honest, all of us seek that on one level or another, either with our earthly father or with our heavenly father. And, And even though Yakov, Learned a lot of different things, probably even just uh, the wrong type of humility. He was humbled by his father, but almost forced into that humility. I don't know about you, I don't, I don't respond well to that. But it's not the type of humility that I like to learn from. There, there was another lady, and you may know her, Mother Teresa. Uh, she was a devout Catholic woman. She was from East Germany as well. She grew up during this time, so she knew all about Stalin, and she knew all about Hitler and all those other things, but her heart was such that when she was on a train ride uh, through uh, the Swiss Alps, actually, God took hold of her and said, I want you to go to India, and so she went to India, and she went to Calcutta, India, and she opened up several different homes for the indigent and the, de- uh, the, the dying there. And the first home she actually opened was a place called Kali Ghat, which is actually attached to the Temple of Kali, which is one of the Hindu gods there. And it's, it's actually a very grotesque place, to be perfectly honest with you. Kali is one of those Hindu gods that requires blood sacrifice uh, and has for, for thousands of years. It's a very dark place. I've been there. I've served there. Uh, and her heart was such that she looked for the, 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 the heart of, of a human being in their very eyes and their very souls, seeing that they were redeemable, that they were made in God's creation and, and made in his image, and she desired for them. But she would do this all the time, and one of the things that was most interesting about her was that she gave this, this vow of poverty, but she changed the way that nuns dressed in India. They, they wear white uh, saris, just like an Indian woman would, with blue trim, and, and the habits are also uh, white and blue. They're not black and everything else like you might see, you know, Maria. Remember that from The Sound of Music? Uh, it wasn't like that. She changed that, and, and over the years, Mother Teresa won multiple humanitarian awards and became a very loud voice globally for the atrocities that were going on, for, for the poor, for the sick, for the dying, and, and for, for those that were just in deep, deep poverty. And she, she had this quote, and I want to read it for you. It's up here, too, if you want to see it, too. It's, she said, Humility is the mother of all virtues, purity, charity, and obedience. It is in being humble that our love becomes real, devoted, and ardent. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor grace, because you know that, uh, what you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. If they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. What Mother Teresa understood was was when she was in the right frame of mind and heart and she was focused on what it was she believed God asked her to do, that no amount of praise, no amount of of, 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 of of, of discouragement, no amount of criticism, no amount of that would bring her up or take her down because it wasn't about what others said about her or to her or from her. It was about who she served and how she was so adamantly in love with Jesus Christ. She had a rich relationship with, with Jesus. Now, I know some of you may not be familiar with, with the Catholic faith, and, and some of you are, uh and there's 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 always lots of speculation about any faith system that's not yours doesn't really matter what it is but i'm gonna tell you something she knew who jesus was i promise you that i've read too many of her books i've been to too many of her places she knew who jesus was but she also knew humility her schedule and for the nuns that work there at the at the the um, sister house they call it on ripon street in calcutta their schedule is four thirty a.m every morning to ten thirty at night every day seven days a week And it's built in with prayer and with service and with all kinds of things. And they're just hard at it all the time. And she was one of those little bitty tiny women. I think she stood like four foot nine. She was a a tiny little thing. Uh, But she was a fireball. And she always had the right words to come out of, the right answers. And she had the world stage. Now, she could have done a lot with the world stage. She could have got out and blasted people uh, uh, about how terrible it was for them to live the way they do and everything else. But she never did. She always acted with such humility, with such grace. She didn't see things for what they could be. She saw them for what they are, but she saw God, how he could work in the middle of all that as well too. She demonstrated more than anything, a characteristic that we're going to talk about today about meekness. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter five, verse five. I admit to having not hit the save button. So your bulletin is wrong. That's last week's. Uh, It's Matthew chapter five, verse five, not verse four, which I know it's not a big deal. We're just one off there. But she understood meekness, and I want to share a little bit this morning about what that means is as we walk through the Beatitudes and we walk through the words to live by that Jesus taught for us. And as Jesus is talking in these these first set of Beatitudes, the blessed are thee, he's just talking about complete joys bestowed upon, complete satisfaction is given to those who demonstrate these characteristics, and they're the ones who are in my kingdom. They're the ones who are worthy to inherit the kingdom of God. And when we get to verse 5, it says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth or inherit the land, as some of your translations may seem. Now, meekness is a really interesting word because it talks about strength under control. And many times, the Greek word alone just talks about a a bit in a horse's mouth. And if you've ever ridden a horse or seen a a horse, how he's controlled, where his head goes, the rest of his body follows. And if if you have a well-trained horse, a small child can lead a giant horse around just with a small piece of leather or a rope pulling him around because of the bit that's in his mouth. They, they are meek animals. They have the destructive power of running through and barreling over and jumping through fences and everything else. But they are restrained in such a way that that power is used for its, its, its official purposes and its good purposes when the right trainer and the right rider knows how to lead this horse. If you've ever ridden a horse, you know that you really don't actually lead a horse. You actually volunteer with him to do the things together. If you've ever had a stubborn horse, you know that a, that a horse uh, that is really stubborn will, will turn around and bite you. I don't know if anybody's ever had that, and they have to put certain restraints on him. He's not as meek of an animal as you want him to be. And in our culture in our society today, we look at meekness as a weakness, and it's, it's not. Mother Teresa, at four foot six or however tall she was, was w- had the voice. She could have done all kinds of good things around this world, and she could have stood up and yelled and screamed at the top of her lungs and just blasted Western society and all the, the opulence and all the extra we have, but she didn't do that. Because she said that draws attention away from God. It draws attention away from what God is doing. And so she understood the meekness characteristics of while she is strong and while she has a platform, while she has a stage to, to say really whatever she wants, it doesn't mean she has to. It doesn't mean she should abuse that. It doesn't mean that she should take advantage of that power that she has, that's been given to her, that she's taken, no matter what the case may be. She doesn't have to use that and shouldn't use that, especially if it takes away from the primary picture of who Jesus is. And so when we see, blessed are the meek, complete satisfaction, complete joy will be given to those who have strength, who have power, but have chosen to restrain that so that it will bring glory and honor and attention to God, not to oneself, these are the type of people who will inherit the land who are invited into God's kingdom. And so when Jesus is talking to his disciples, those who are following him, he says to them, if you have strength, if you have power, if you have authority, if you have influence, you can use that in its right timing. But if you abuse that, you're not demonstrating what it means to really be a kingdom citizen. And so we we see, what does that meekness look like? Well, Moses, for example, if you go back to the book of Numbers, he was in charge of getting all these people out of Egypt. They were enslaved forever, and he's leading them all. And he's got them wandering around in the wilderness. And they've been fed, they've been protected. God's taken out those who are pursuing them and chasing them. And yet what happens? His brother and his sister begin to complain. And they say, well, why should Moses have the right to speak to God and the rest of us can't? Why does he get all the attention? What makes him so special? Now, they were related to the leader of all this, so their voice actually was pretty loud, and people would begin to listen to them. And when they would talk, next thing you know, the rest of the camp is talking too, and God summoned all three of them to the tent of meeting. And he said, come, stand. You want to be in my presence, Miriam and Aaron? Come on in. You don't know what you're asking for, but come on in. See, the reason why Moses is the leader that he is is because he is the meekest man in all the earth. That's what, what Numbers chapter 12 tells us. He was the meekest man in all the earth. Despite his strength, despite his power, despite his knowledge, despite his relationship with God, he never used that in an abusive way to push his own agenda. But Miriam and Aaron, you're complaining about worldly things, and you're not paying attention to the best example you've got in front of you. Jesus was also a great example of meekness. He says, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light. I am lowly and humble in all that I do. He said that in Matthew chapter 11. If you want to be meek, it's okay to have strength, but use it wisely, use it well. If you know anything about, uh, about jiu-jitsu, especially Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's a really interesting thing because that's where the little guy can actually take command of the big guy, and it has nothing to do with strength. And the, the goal of that is, is you take someone to the ground, and you eliminate all the leverage and all the advantage that they have, and, and the military uses this, and the little guy usually beats the snout out of the big guy because the big guy is just strong, but he's not agile, and he's not quick. Well, Jesus is saying this is, meekness is kind of like the little guy here. You're going to use what you have, but you're not going to overpower anybody with your strength. Use it wisely. Use it smart, but use it to bring the right glory and attention to where it ought to be. Your meekness ought to be in such a way that people go, you know what, that person could have responded to a situation a certain way, but they didn't. Hey, if if that happened to me, man, I'd punch somebody's lights out. How come that guy didn't do that? Man, this person's kind of getting walked on and getting pushed around a little bit. They're getting criticized. They're getting put down. But they're not responding back in a negative way what is it about them? And I don't know about you, but I've watched people take a lot of abuse in a lot of different ways and not retaliate. And it just makes me shake my head and just go, man, you're a better person than I am. No doubt about that. Why are you doing that? And if you ever ask them, they'll usually give you a really simple answer. Well, you know, I don't really see the value in that. I'm not sure how this really makes me a better person. I mean, just because I can beat this person up, don't you think that person's hurting inside? What, what really have I proved? That I, that I am stronger, that I can take advantage of someone, but they're still in, in a terrible mess. I mean, their heart's broken for whatever reason. Their mind's not in the right place. What have I really gained by demonstrating my strength? I've actually gained more by drawing their attention in and pulling them in by being meek, by restraining that strength so that I might tell them more about who Jesus is. The other part of this verse is that the the meek will inherit the land or inherit the earth. Now That word inheritance is a really interesting word because it says that a familial relationship says I have the right to whatever my father had. And so he can give to me before he passes or when he passes, I have the right to whatever he possesses. And so in order to have that, I must be related to him in some way. What's really interesting uh, through biblical times is that an adopted child had full hereditary rights and could not be disinherited. Whereas a blood child, a birth child, your own child, could be completely disinherited. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how many of you have got your wills made out or have ever been the recipient of a will. But if you ever look at that and wonder, gosh, you know, why did my brother or sister or cousin or aunt or whoever get more of this than what I did? Don't I deserve that? You have to understand that even to be in that conversation, you have to be a part of that family, Right? And so if you're part of God's family and you fit into his kingdom and you are indeed that that it will inherit the land, it just goes back to Psalm 37 where the psalmist speaks of that, of the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of, of Israel, where God said that my 12 tribes will inherit this land that belongs to them that I promised to Abraham. And this promised land is going to be where I'm going to set up my kingdom and it's where I'm going to rule and it's where, where my people are going to live. They're going to live in peace. They're going to live in, in, in harmony they're going to sing I want to buy the world a coke song right I mean this is where people are going to be because I'm going to create this place for them but only those who demonstrate meekness deserve to be in my kingdom who have that characteristic And, and so when we think about this 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 one verse blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the the earth or inherit the land blessed are them how does one actually obtain meekness or how does one even demonstrate meekness does that mean that you just get picked on and beat up well during World War II in, in England, they actually had this sign. It said, keep calm and carry on. You guys seen this before? It, it's actually very famous now, but it was not famous during World War II in England. The, the, the English actually put three different signs before the people, and they said, we're going to have three different campaigns to talk about the war effort. And the other two, which I, I forget what they are, the other two were the ones that actually were the ones distributed, but this was the one that they put in the bottom of a, uh, of a pile, and it never got distributed during World War II. And one of the reasons why it never got distributed, because when they look at this, and now, look, language changes over the years, and let's, let's face it, y'all know how much I, I, I don't like British Siri. The, the, the Brits just talk weird, right? Okay, I love them all, but they just talk weird. They don't talk real English. They don't talk, you know, South Texas English, Right? But when you look at this, just keep calm and carry on, when you have the crown up there, they actually said public perception says, well, the kingdom is looking down upon, the monarchy in England is looking down upon all these people when we're about to get bombed by Germany and just basically says, oh, just suck it up, you're going to be fine, just deal with it. And that's what that sign actually communicated in 1939. Now, it doesn't communicate that anymore. It communicates to us that, hey, look... Things are out of control. Things are going to happen the way you don't want them to, but just keep calm and carry on. If you have a pursuit, if you have a goal, if you have a destination, keep calm and carry on. Keep doing what you're doing. The bumps in the road are going to come. You really can't navigate the bumps in the road. You just have to deal with them as they go. Keep calm and carry on. Well, that's great advice. It looks good on a poster or a t-shirt, but it's really kind of challenging, isn't it? Because you know when things are coming at you, when people are coming at you, when people are, are, are saying things that maybe are or are not true, when they're calling you out when they do need to or when they don't need to, but it still hurts no matter what, it, the, the last thing you really do is keep calm. When bombs are falling out of the sky and they're, they're hitting buildings all around you and the air raid signs are going and people are farming in victory gardens, keeping calm is probably not on the top of your priority list, even though we know that you want to be around the calmest person on the boat whenever things start to go wrong, don't you? You want to migrate towards that person when things start to go wrong. And so, how do we demonstrate and obtain meekness? Well, look, this is great advice, actually. Keep calm and carry on. But let's look and see what the Bible has to say about this. If you want to turn, you're welcome to, to do so uh, to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It's a great a um, uh, letter that's written to Titus about how to, to lead the church, how to manage the church, how to grow the people up in the church. And in the first uh, eight verses here, uh, and it's up here on the board for you if you don't turn that way or there's a Bible in the back if you want to get one. Uh, but in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, we see some of these ways that we can not call attention to ourselves, but call attention to Christ. So if we're going to keep calm and carry on, one of the best ways to do that is say, listen, even when things come my way, even when things afflict me, even when things aren't the way I want them to do, I'm going to calm down a minute. I'm not going to react out of emotions. I'm going to carry on with where God wants me to go. I'm going to look at the circumstances for what they are, out of my control and above my head, and I'm going to carry on. And so Titus says this. He says in in chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, remind them to be submissive to rulers, because that's what we all want to do, right? It's just bow down and just do what the master says. Well, that's what he's saying. A true Christ follower is going to look and say, God, put that person in rule. It may not be what I want. It may not be a godly rule, but I'm going to be submissive to them to the point of, I'm honoring God. Submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. What's really hard to be ready for every good work when you're so focused on how bad things are and how tough you got it right now. You can't do the work you're called to do if you're bogged down in the emotions of the moment. You could do a much better job when you're focused on, okay, listen, I know this is hard, this is tough, but I can do what God has called me to do. Verse 2 Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated others and hating one another. That doesn't sound like somebody you really want to be around, right? But if you have a relationship in Jesus Christ and you see what he's done for you, that he went to the cross to forgive your sins and to set you free, you no longer live that way. And it's easier to keep calm because you realize I don't have to live in envy and malice and strife and I don't have to talk bad about people behind their backs or in front of them. I don't have to do any of those things because God's called me to something greater than that and he's given me the power to do so. In Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Pay attention to verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these sayings so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. If you want to be an heir to the land that you're going to inherit, if you want to be related to the one who has dominion and control and wants to give to you his very best and wants to reward you, you're going to have to be a kingdom citizen that, that does, in fact, stays calm and carries on carries on with what God has called him to do. And you don't quarrel with people over big or little things. That's hard for us because we all have opinions, we all have ideals, we all have preferences, we all have pasts that we like things done a certain way. We all have personality types. It's hard for us. And we're not saying lay down and just be pacifistic about everything. When someone comes at you and and there's conflict, just give in to them and just do whatever they want. I'm not saying that at all. The Bible's not saying that at all. It's saying whenever possible, try to be at peace with everyone. Because that's what kingdom citizenship looks like. That's what the meek do. Is just because you have the power and the authority. Just because God has saved you. And you can say, hey, listen, I, I can just push back. I can invoke God's name and we'll just make this a holy conversation somewhere or another. doesn't mean you should. It means that you just keep calm and carry on. Uh, another way that we can practice meekness is that we can suffer the little things. Now, I know... Uh, Many of us have different versions of what suffering means. And sometimes it's physical suffering. Sometimes it's emotional suffering. Um, Sometimes it's suffering that we've brought upon ourselves. And sometimes it's suffering that has been cast upon us. And really, no matter what, we're going to suffer some way or another. There's no escaping that. When sin entered into this world, pain and rot and death and hunger and sorrow and shame and all those things came with that, and that brings about suffering for us. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we see, we see Peter inst- giving instructions about suffering the little things. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And pay attention to what he says next. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? You endure. Listen, if you deserved it, what credit is it if you say, listen, I... I, 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 I I broke a window in my house, I broke one of my mom's favorite figurines, and mom spanked me. I'm suffering. You deserved every bit of that. Don't, don't try to call attention to that. Hey, I, 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 I lied to the IRS, and then I robbed a bank to try to get the money that I thought was owed to me that I wanted, and I got locked up and put in federal prison for 15 years. I'm suffering. You deserve that. that. You brought that upon yourself. But what he's saying here is those who suffer unjustly, I honored God. I trusted him in the big and the little things. I chose not to participate in A, B, C, or D. I don't watch movies like this. I don't go to sites like that. My money doesn't go this way. Those are just behavioral things. I, 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 I give to the poor not to get God's favor, but because God has given me the ability to give to the poor to help them out, to bring glory and honor and attention to him. And so I may be suffering because the money I could use uh, that I give to the poor, I could use for something different, but I'm, I'm not suffering unjustly for that. We're talking about whenever you are beaten for your faith in Jesus Christ, whenever you're locked into prison for, for praying in public, whenever you possess a Bible in a country that says you cannot possess a Bible, that's suffering unjustly from a spiritual point of view. W- whenever um, Whenever you live in such a way that you're just trying to survive and get by and people look at you because the color of your skin or the wealth of your family puts you in a different caste or level system and you suffer unjustly for that because you can't do anything about those things. That's suffering unjustly. And when you retaliate in such a negative way, it doesn't bring attention to God, it brings attention to you. And you may be right in your retaliation or at least your indignation but how you retaliate. He's talking about whenever you suffer unjustly, suffer the little things for the right reasons. Jesus suffered unjustly at every single step he took. There was no purpose for him to have been beaten 39 or 40 times with a cat of nine tails. There was no reason for a crown of thorns to be shoved upon his head just to be mocked. There was no reason for him to carry a cross up a hill to be nailed to it. He didn't do anything to deserve any of those things. When he stood before Pilate, Pilate couldn't find any reason to convict him. And then he sent him back to Herod, and Herod couldn't either, and he sent him back to Pilate. And what did Pilate do? He says, I know what I'll do. We'll just go democratic all of a sudden. What do you want me to do with him? And all the crowd said, crucify him. Crucified it was the most unified people had been about evil in a very long time they were all dedicated to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and they had no reason for which he did so and what did they do in return they let a guy named Barabbas out of jail a known murderer and conspirer and a terrible dude they let him free out of exchange you want to talk about suffering unjustly this is what Jesus did and that was not little things and he did that because he was meek he had the power and the authority to do so as he hung on that cross, they said, if you're so powerful, throw yourself down and bring yourself back up. And he says, I can do all those things, but I choose to stay up here. I choose to stay up here because all of humanity needs me to do so. I am meek and I am lowly and I am humble of spirit, but I choose to be up here because I love you. He suffered unjustly the little things. A little bit later, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, ladies, you may know this verse because it talks about the external appearance of some of the women during that time. But I think this speaks to every one of us when we put on a happy face, when inside we're broken, when we put on all these joyful things, and we put on this mask and this facade, when inside we're just not living the way we need to. There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no freedom that God has set us free in that. And we adorn the outside, but the inside we're broken and we're hurting. Welcome to humanity. We need to be gentle in spirit, and a quiet spirit gets far more attention because guess what? Beauty fades, doesn't it? it fades anybody who buys wrinkle cream ladies you know what i'm talking about but i'm gonna tell you something there's nothing more beautiful than living a life with someone you love i watch amanda get more and more beautiful each and every day and i thank god for that because i don't deserve that but the thing that makes her so beautiful in my mind is the times that i mess up and i do i know some of you are shocked by that she doesn't blast and she didn't get all fired up she didn't yell and she didn't scream she quit throwing things about 10 years ago it's awesome now But she has a quiet spirit about her. And just like anybody that you're close with, they can kind of give you a look or maybe just a a small little... You kind of know that quiet spirit is suffering inside, maybe for you, maybe because of you. But it's far different than any face she can put on, whether it be adorning with makeup or jewelry or even an angry face that she puts on. Just like each and every one of us, we need to quietly listen to what God is saying and adorn our lives with meekness. It's not tearing our clothes and covering ourselves with ashes. That comes from mourning, but meekness just says, I'm going to walk on through. I'm going to trust God. And when the bumps in the road come, I'm going to move around. And then finally, one of the best ways we can really practice meekness is make sure that we understand that revenge is not the answer. If you move on down to 1 Peter chapter 3, a couple more verses from there. Verses 8 and 9 it says, finally, all of you, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on contrary, bless. Give complete satisfaction to you. For to you, this you recall, that you may obtain a blessing. If we learn anything about meekness, it, it talks about who we are and the character of who we are. And what Jesus is instructing to his disciples, not to the crowds that are gathered around in curiosity, but to those who are saying, I want to follow you, I want to be like you, I want to be in your kingdom. What he's saying to them, what he's saying to us in the great application, if you hear nothing else today, is simply this, show people the Jesus you want them to see. And it doesn't mean there's multiple Jesuses, by the way. It doesn't mean there's different aspects of Jesus that call him out. It means know the right Jesus, be like the right Jesus, and show people the Jesus you want them to see. You remember the bracelets, what would Jesus do? And it just went down to WWJD, and we thought people would just ask questions. Well, let me tell you something. People ask questions a lot when you're dropping all kinds of swear words and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that calls attention to you, and you got one of those bracelets on. There, there are fewer things that confuse me more than someone with, with a cross, and this just bugs me. I know this may hurt some of you, but you know uh, the, the rhinestoning that goes on pants and stuff, and I see crosses on the back pockets? It just makes me crazy because you sit on that. But then you see people who have crosses and cross tattoos and whatever, but they're doing things that aren't bringing glory and honor to God. And it's like, listen, do you understand what that symbol is? It represents a God who came to earth and died for you. I don't know it's cool and it's artsy and that's awesome and all, but if you're going to represent God in any way, whether it be a mark on your skin or something you hang around your neck or something you put on your pockets or whatever, then you represent him like he truly is. He is humble and lowly. He is meek. He is strong and mighty in so many ways, but he chooses not to react, not to use his authority, not to use his power. Jesus even spoke up against his mother at his first miracle. When she said, Jesus, get over here and turn this water to wine, he says, woman, it's not my time. His mom just kind of ignored him and said, hey, y'all do what he says to do. He was meek in saying, yes, I have the ability to do this, but it's not my time to do so. I'm going to do this, not to bring attention to to the, the person throwing the party, I'm going to do this to bring attention to God. And when it is his time to go to the cross, he's going to willingly do so, even though he has the power and the strength to say, no, I don't want to do that. And he's not going to be vengeful and vindictive. He's not going to try to make himself out to be anything more than what he really is. He's going to agree to go to that cross for you and for me. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. And if you want to inherit God's kingdom, if you want to walk into God's kingdom, You have to understand that the strength that God has was such that he chose not to demonstrate it except by sending his son to the cross. He showed his strength over sin for you and for me because he loves us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit inherit the land. Those are great words to live by. I encourage you to practice that this week. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you. We thank you for how you... Show us that you indeed have a a humble heart, a a lowly heart, Father, that you have not done anything just out of this grand attention gathering. But your love for us caused you to do some really strange things, some things that are hard for us to grasp and hard to understand. And so, Lord, for those of us who declare you as as Lord and Savior and have, have trusted Christ, Father, I pray that we would represent you well, that when people look at us, they see Jesus. Just like when you see generations side by side, you see the resemblance in one another, Father, I pray that our reflection would be that of Christ. That we wouldn't adorn ourselves in such a way that we try to make ourselves look better than what we really are, but in all that we do, we would be humble and we would call attention to God alone. And so, Father, we do want your blessing. We do want the complete joy and satisfaction that only you can provide. And so we ask, God, that you would show us what it is to restrain a little bit, to to indeed keep calm and carry on, to know that when we revenge or revile or when we pay back evil for evil, that we don't move further across the spiritual needle. Father, instead we reflect a, a false God, one that doesn't have grace but just has wrath. And, Lord, we know you have both. In the middle of that is just this deep jealousy that you have for us, that you want no other love in our lives but for you. God, you demonstrated that on the cross with Jesus, and we thank you for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.